You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are on our second week discussing Emma Stone X's The Lamp Lighters. We are doing parts five to eight this week. Herds is in the hot seat. And my goodness, as we continue through what I think is continuing to be one of my uh, favorite new novels we've covered on the show, uh, I've just really been enjoying, uh, enjoying the style, the flow, and revisiting this incredibly uncomfortable text. It's great. Uncomfortable? I mean, not wrong. The amount of vitriol spewed between the characters in the last couple of parts has been mm-hmm. impressive. Oh, it's great. Uh, I, kept, I, I kept coming on a new interview, particularly ones with the police, and thinking, man, this person really is the worst. Um, but it just, like, <laughs> every character is despicable. Like, the way that the police handle the investigation is awful. The way that the characters respond to it and just, like, can't give them any answers is unhelpful. The way that, it, I think it's Helen is, like, having a fling with Bill. Like, there's this whole romance It's very drama. weird it's because we get told that <laughs> they're having a fling, but then a few pages later get told that Bill was having a one-directional fling uh-huh. and Helen was just kind of, like, putting up with it. And you don't really know who to believe. Well, that's that's the thing, isn't it? Um, this story seems to have a very strong penchant for giving us two sides of the same story and seeing that they are wildly different. Yeah. Um, where Helen has this impression of, you know, it was really not that important. That betrays her as kind of a, an awful person in a sense, but also mm-hmm. maybe Bill's just overreacting, you know? It's it's very bizarre, and I'm kind of enjoying it. And I'm I'm beginning to really appreciate what you said last week about how you you kind of get tossed around on the waves of this novelist. You're flung from perspective to perspective because it's not just from the the men on the on the lighthouse to the women at shore. It's like between even those characters, there are oh, perspectives yeah. and and subjective interpretations of events, which I'm really I'm really enjoying. One of the most exciting things in this stretch for me is how many stylistic changes we go through. Because last week we were talking about there was a very defined style of this, you know, ambient third person in the introduction, mm-hmm. and then this kind of like ghostly poetic style prose on the lighthouse. <laughs> I like that. And then this weird second person interview style on the shore with our absent investigator yeah uh, that basically put us in the seat of dan sharp which was a really fun feeling for the way that this story carried through its narrative but then when we get into parts five to eight first of all part five is another similar style of poetic prose on the lighthouse it starts to get a little bit more chaotic we get a lot of mm. ghostly imagery they think they see bodies in the water there's kind of this very droning passage where Vince sure. is going through and talking about all of the things he's learned from books while he's had little else to do on the lighthouse. It's just very weirdly repetitively worded without actually saying the same thing over again even once. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, it just gives me the creeps. <laughs> then we get back into Park 6, we're on the mainland, and we go through with a normally written, like, third first-person hybrid, as you'd expect from a crime fiction book, mm-hmm. uh, of the women on shore talking about the history and that affair you mentioned. Then in Part 7, we go back to the lighthouse and things start to get even more wild. There's more droning sounds, more crashing of the waves in the way that the words sound out. And then part eight, just at least stylistically, we go back to that same interview style we had in the previous parts of the story we were talking about last week. But now Dan Sharp is there and now it is written as Dan Sharp's notes. Mm -hmm. And oh, it is like one of the least uncomfortable passages of the book to read. But it's also such an excellent execution of the standard murder mystery knowledge dump 
in a way that doesn't just make you feel completely overwhelmed and bored by facts. I, I felt as though part eight, you know, I mean, it's even titled as interviews. It's very distinct in the way it's titled and the way that it's written. Yeah. It almost felt like a palate cleanser mm. um, before we take the next plunge into the, into the depths. There's a sequence where one of the lighthouse keepers is talking about the different words you can use to describe the sea and storms. He describes thunder as- Yeah, that was the kind of droning passage I was mentioning with Vince there. Yeah, I, I want to use that. It was Vince, was it? Yeah, I want to use that as an example because we hear- um, well, he describes the word thunder as sounding like a boulder running towards you and the word squall as like a piercing, like with the, the square. I think it's it's ultimately giving the impression that the sea is like a living thing. Mm. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of of characterizing the sea almost as an observer in the same way that, that Dan is observing the characters in the mainland. I kind of felt that very vividly. Yeah, it very much feels like a kind of personified version of that third person ambient camera mm. in the beginning with Jory Martin, where it's like looking down on them. That's kind of the way that Vince seems to describe it. And I really enjoyed actually getting into the heads of these characters. Uh, a big part of this novel is the relationships between them and how the the mystery of like what happened on the lighthouse has like changed their lives and ruined them, which is really it's very dark. Like it, it's not a story of blood and injury and gore, but you feel like everything that we're learning about these characters is is like skeletons in the closet. You know, yeah. like we're dredging up things that we really shouldn't be looking at, and things that are very like ominous and, and foreboding. I suppose. Mm, there's this great line in there where I think it's Helen and Michelle. Uh, talking about, you know, whether or not they believe in religion and they both say something to the effect of, yeah, I'm actually pretty jealous of those people because yes. they can just kind of accept things are going to be I all right. I loved that line. <laughs> I love that discussion of religion because, like, you know, if we're reading a murder mystery novel, we're supposed to be seeing things from the, the eyes of logic and reasoning. and yeah. But to have a book then say, well, actually, if you believe that there could be a supernatural explanation or a, a religious explanation or that everything is according to God's plan, for instance, you can get a, a good amount of solace from that. And I think it's it's really like brave for that to be a topic that is brought up in this book, which does dive into supernatural elements. There's the appearance of the there's the silver man and the uh, the white rock and like all these other little bits and pieces of things that you know are whimsical or strange. I'm I'm interested that you call the white rook supernatural there because uh, the white rook is introduced as like an old rival of Vince's for who sure, he sure. found out worked for the Trident Company. Yes, who yes. Ended up pinning the crime on Vince after his death. Yes, for sure, and for sure. Then after we've had that introduction and also hinted a little bit before, but not mentioned as explicitly, we start talking about the bird as the white rook as this imagery. Yeah, because there's a discussion with, I don't even remember who the character is, but it's just like old sailor guy who just starts absolutely just chewing, chewing Vince out, I believe. And he's just saying, you know, I've seen the white rook, you know, many, many times. I'm like, oh, I don't think that's real. And it becomes this like really aggressive conversation where we're just laying Vince's sins bare for everyone to see. But like the white rook, in some sense, uh, is is the idea of this like this this being who you never see, but who knows everything. And I think that that kind of fits in well with the idea of this this criminal character who tries to pin everything on Vince after he's dead. Like they're a character who may not directly interact with the story, but still knows all of Vince's secrets and can judge him after the fact. Yeah, in the same way that some 
animal, some bird that sees everything but doesn't fall into into human ways of thinking yeah. can kind of objectively judge what's going on, I suppose. That's kind of how I read the White Rook. Well, I think that's the really fun thing about when Sid shows up is that uh, Sid being the old sailor that's guy his name, you Sid. Yeah. I remember. Yep. And uh, basically, yep. you know, he, he shows up and he just starts kind of berating the whole team and telling war stories with them. Yeah. But this is in the middle of the stretch where we've had introduced the idea that these men are starting to kind of maybe lose their marbles a bit. You know, they maybe see a body in the water and Arthur thinks to himself, well, you know, there's a gun in that desk just in case mm-hmm. there's someone else here that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that I might raise as a criticism of the book uh, that I haven't really touched on is that in terms of their patterns of speech, all of the characters in this are nigh on indistinguishable. Interesting. I think that they are still really strongly characterized by what they say, but less so how they say it. Like Vince even mentions that, oh, my language is decorated by short, hard syllables, mm-hmm. but we don't see that. You don't really often. see that. Uh, I think that Sid here is the proof to me that all of this is intentional because sure, Sid sure. feels so much more out of place on account of everyone else being so similar in the way that they talk. And that kind of excites me because it almost raises the idea that what if this guy who arrives on a boat with a boatman that they <laughs> don't know as yeah. opposed to their Jory Martin maybe isn't even there at all? Well, that is the big question, is it? That's the big question of everything on this in this damn book. We'll, we'll get into that in the mystery section, I'm sure. Well- I think that will uh, take us out for the uh, general story discussion this Mm. episode. We will be back later on talking about the mysteries of this and herds. We will have to get your solution for a couple of questions that this novel has raised. Oh, no. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing Emma Stone X's The Lamplighters, and we'll be back with that in just a second. Hey, this is Herds. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be joined by Jim Noy from The Invisible Event and In Gad We Trust for the next book we're covering. And we thought it would be good fun to share with you a discussion from his show with one Tony Medawar, editor of an anthology of lost detective stories called Bodies from the Library, uh, to chat about the project and the importance of newspaper murder mysteries. Uh, we'll have links up on the podcast so you can find Jim's show. Go let him know we said hi. This is Death of the Reader. Welcome to In Gad We Trust, a podcast based based in and around classic era golden age detective fiction of the 1920s to the 1940s. My name is Jim, I blog at The Invisible Event, and the plan for this podcast is that each episode features me in conversation with fellow bloggers, with authors, with enthusiasts in the genre to talk about a topic of their choosing. Joining me this week back for a, I think, possibly record third appearance on the podcast is Tony Medawar. Tony, welcome once again to In Gad We Trust. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. Something I'm curious about is how difficult it's becoming to find stories to include because obviously you've done a tremendous job popularizing these previously unheralded stories by potentially unheralded authors so i know you talked before about all of the experience that you had going through british library archives and various author archives and things like this but realistically how hard is it now to find stuff of a suitable quality that is genuinely unpublished i imagine it must be very tough well originally i planned out the contents for six books oh wow so 
that's that's how far I got based on what I know or what I knew at the time, which was four years ago, five years ago, in fact. What I try to do with each volume is to include one or two, possibly three star pieces. Mm. So, for example, the first volume included Agatha Christie's first short story ever published, which had never been collected. The second included the last Lord Peter Whimsey story and the last uh, Gervais Fenn story. The third included what I thought was the last Roderick Allen story. Volume four includes another story by Crispin, the last Reggie Fortune story. Volume five and six will have stories in a similar vein. There's a newly discovered short story by Anthony Barclay, which will appear in, in volume five. And I am hopeful that there will be a television play uh, by Nicholas Blake in, in volume five as well. And then there's something by Marjorie Allium coming up as well. So it's, it, is a, it is difficult to, to, to keep finding them, but the first six volumes were planned out. At the moment, there's only five. Um, maybe a sixth volume will happen. I don't know. Uh, beyond that, uh, I have some ideas, and I absolutely welcome suggestions. Among others, Jamie Sturgeon and Curtis Evans have been incredibly helpful in, in drawing my attention to stories that they think should be brought back into the light, as it were. But it's it's hard. Uh, it it is hard, and there are some pieces, some stories which people know about, which are really difficult to get hold of. Mm. So, for example, virtually certain that Volume Five will include Vacancy with Corpse, which is a Sister Ursula's story by Anthony mm. Boucher. Really hard to get hold of. I've I've got hold of a copy, and as long as uh, arrangements can be agreed or whatever you whatever whatever you say, that will be included in Volume Five as well. So there's, uh, there's, there's quite a bit out there, but it is a shallowing well. That answers the question. That answers then my, my follow-up question, because I was going to ask if you are deliberately restricting yourself, I guess because of the association with this series with the Bodies from the Library Conference held at the British Library, whether you were restricting yourself to British authors... Because we know there's the American Mystery Classics range that have cropped up under Otto Penzler's stewardship in the States. So whether you were obviously generally trying to avoid, say, American or simply non-British authors, but if potentially you're looking at Boucher for, for later on, then I guess not. That, that answers that question. No, I've, I've never wanted to restrict it. The first volume had uh, Arthur Upfield, who was Australian. The second volume had Q Patrick, who was American. Clayton Lawson, who was also American. Uh, third volume again, we've got Naya Marsh, New Zealander, and John Dixon Carr, who of course is American, even though he was kind of British at the same time. We also had Joseph Cummings. And this volume again has Naya Marsh, who's uh, obviously New Zealander too. And Alice Campbell, who was again American, British. T.S. Stribling is American. So... No, I've never restricted it in that way. All right, let's move on then to one of the other 17,000 books that you've edited in the last year or so. Talking about stories in newspapers, you have recently overseen the collation of Anthony Barclay's novel, originally published under the title Sicily Disappears, mm. now under a new title, The Wintringham Mystery. Now, I'm right in saying, aren't I, that this was originally serialised in a newspaper. That link is, is not flawed. No, that's absolutely right. So the, the Wintringham Mystery is the original title under which Sicily Disappears appeared when it was serialised in the Daily Mirror uh, just around a century ago. 
And it's easily one of the most elusive books in a golden age. I don't know anyone who has a copy of Sicily Disappears. It's a really interesting little story about a debutante and disappearance, an apparently impossible disappearance. It takes place during a seance. And it's really great that HarperCollins were, uh, were willing to bring it out. So I'm hoping that will complete uh, some people's collection of Anthony Barclay's books, because I think there's a lot of people out there who would love to have the chance to read Sicily Disappears. I'm one of them, and this is their opportunity. Mm, that's really cool. Are there any other obscure novels that were similarly serialised? Not not to say that this means you're going to oversee or that HarperCollins will consent to the republication of them, <laughs> but are there any other books that are similarly hard to find that were... I mean, this was, I think, 30 parts, I think you said, before yeah. we started recording. So are, were there any of the books that were cut up in that same way that have equally sort of fallen off the radar? So I'm, I'm not aware of any other books that were serialised that uh, in, the, in the same way as, um, as The Wintering and Mystery. But there are certainly other rare books which it would be lovely to see back in print. The one that really springs to mind is The Trail of the Three Lean Men, which is a thriller by uh, Noel Barclay. And uh, in case you don't know who Noel Barclay is, um, it's Christopher Bush uh, mm-hmm. under, a, under a different pseudonym. And that that's a, a, a story that I'm hoping we will see back in print in the next couple of years. So there's quite a few. The, the thing that amused me particularly about the Winchingham mystery is back in the 1920s, there was a whole spate of uh, books being serialised um, as competitions. And one of the entry entrants for the Winchingham mystery was Agatha Christie, mm. who entered under her husband's name. And she also entered uh, another competition, which was to solve the mystery at Norman's Court by John Chancellor. Now, these these competition mysteries, uh, it shows they were really done in a pre-internet age, because a few years later, Agatha Christie was asked to be the judge for another newspaper serialisation. And the story uh, concerned was the president's mystery story. In fact, that had already been published in America... <laughs> But because it was America, <laughs> you could be pretty sure in Britain that no one would have read it because <laughs> it was America. So it was run as a, as a competition in the UK. And as I say, Christie was one of the judges. Mm. I wonder at what point they stopped doing the mystery story serial because there's obviously the very famous example of Edgar Wallace being bankrupted by this offering prizes for the four just men. Mm. Wasn't the Big Bow mystery done as a competition as well? That was certainly serialised. I, I, I think so, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you've got some round-robin stories that still appear yeah. from time to time, and Bodies 5 will have a round-robin story by six authors in it, in the same vein as the stories around the pictures or around the... In, in Volume 3, the stories all sit around a, a, a two sentences involving an orange. Mm. Bodies 5 will have the, this uh, six-part round-robin story. There's a wonderful round-robin story. I say wonderful. It's not actually wonderful. But it's it's a wonderful lineup of authors. Peter Levy, Roald Dahl, Ted Willis and Ruth Rendell wrote a round-robin short story. So there are things like that out there. But no, going back to your original question, um, I'm not aware of any other novelised, uh, sorry, competition novels that uh, are undiscovered, as it were. But no. Who knows? There may be. But nobody solved Sicily Disappears. Am I right in saying that? 
nobody solved it completely. Okay. And the Daily Mail don't have any record of the original entries because I was really hoping we could include Agatha Christie's solution yeah. uh, as an annex, but uh, they don't appear to have any records, which is not surprising. It's nearly 100 years ago. Yeah. Why would you keep competition entries? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, look at the sheer number of newspaper stories that you have collated in recent volumes, not just the bodies from the library, but the Freeman Wills Cross collection that came out last year from Crippen and Laundry. There's so much short fiction, short, short fiction. Mm. I mean, there's the Barry Pike collected Leo Bruce collection, mm. isn't there? Which we're hoping will be republished with the extra stories in it. Ah, brilliant. At some point. That would be fantastic, yeah. But, I mean, all of those were originally written for the Evening Standard. There's, yeah. there's, a, there's a, a really rich vein of, of that sort yeah. of stuff, which, is, which has been lost, unfortunately. Well, Crippen and Laundry have done an excellent job in p- pulling them together collections of some of those stories so the julian simmons collection that was edited by john cooper john also edited a collection of stories by anthony gilbert the evening standard was a major major publisher of short fiction but as you say lots of other newspapers also published it not always very good Mm. but there's a lot out there to be discovered Mm. and enjoyed tony medawar talking with jim noy from in gad we trust and the invisible event we will have links up on the podcast if you're curious to find out more about that you're listening to death of the reader stick around You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing parts five to eight of Emma Stonex's The Lamplighters. Herds is the one solving the novel this week. I have read this many moons ago. We've already had Emma Stonex on the show to talk a bit about the themes of the story earlier this year. And Herds, Mm, Flex, there are two questions for you to solve. Oh, no. First of all, I need to know. What happened to Vince, Arthur, and Bill on The Maiden? I need to know, as a part of that, whether you think Trident is covering it up or whether they were genuinely misled. Well, that's the first one's pretty easy. So let's let's go with the second. What's the second question? The second one is who Dan <laughs> Sharp is to these characters. There is a line quite explicitly oh, no. at the very start of part six, Helen and Michelle are discussing, you know, the arrival of Dan Sharp on the case. And Michelle says, what does a novelist want to write about us? Mm. And Helen responds, I don't know. Why does anyone write about anything? Michelle says, there must be a reason. Mm-hmm. Herds, is there a reason? Yeah, yeah. the answer is yes, obviously. Otherwise, you would be asking the question. Obviously. If the answer was no, it'd be a pretty quick episode. <laughs> I mean, I guess we could... We, do you want me to start with Dan Sharp? Because I can do that. We can, we can begin now. I have two possibilities here that I'm kind of toying between. Let's go. Let me, let me tell you that, uh, yeah, I mean, there's that line saying, you know, why would you even want to write about us. There's also some kind of bizarre details that we get about Dan Sharp. We know that all they do is write about the sea, which is like a very deliberate choice. One thing that I'm shocked that this has eluded me for this long, uh, that there is actually a fourth lighthouse keeper mentioned in the novel. Oh, yes. Poor Frank. (laughs) I need to tell you that (laughs) I was somewhat like conscious of his presence and so when they're talking about you know, this this idiot lighthouse keeper who pours his milk on before he pours his, his water into his tea, I was like, oh, they're probably just talking about one of the other two lighthouse keepers that are, you know, in the lighthouse with them. But they're actually talking about Frank and what a crazy person he is. My primary theory right now is that Dan Sharp is probably not Frank himself, but either his son or his grandson. 
and he's like investigating to see whether his, you know, his, his father or grandpa might have something to do with it. Um, however, there is another character in here uh, that is mentioned. There's a rather explicit mention of a, a baby that wouldn't wouldn't have anything. Like I, I'm convinced at this point that Dan Sharp is going to be like related to these these lighthouse keepers. I think that it is more compelling for them to be the little baby because uh, they fall into the trope of the character who can say nothing and knows everything. Yeah. Or rather wants to know everything. This is who Dan Sharp is going to to turn out to be. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say Jenny's child. I hope, I hope that's who the mother is of those children. That's like where my brain's at. I'm quite curious because I feel there's another character who has more mentions than both the word baby and the word Frank in Uh-oh. this novel. What's the word? And that's Jory Martin, who oh, no. in this murder mystery novel was the first character mentioned in the entire book. And as we know, in the wise words of Father Ronald Knox, is thus most likely to be responsible for things. And if sure. you are saying Dan Sharp is, uh, you know, responsible for the actions in this novel. Would it not make sense for it to be the child of a Jory Martin, the first character introduced? Because you know what? That would fall under the the prophecy, you might say. The prophecy. That the first character on the scene is always the cop. You know what? I'm convinced, Flex. I think that you've you've turned me around and you've shown me the light. I'm I'm gonna go with Jory Martin's son because and I'm gonna because. say it's because they because there's a trope in murder mystery, right, where sometimes a locked room is not a locked room because the person who got there first was the one who locked it. I'm going to say that Jury Martin's son is Dan Sharp because- You think- you Hold on. You think that Dan Sharp is there investigating whether his father killed these yes. three men? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because all the wives, all the wives, all the spouses, they all have this question of like, did my husband do it? And they want to let it rest because they don't want to. They don't want to think about whether their husband or their their spouse or their cheating man who's sleeping with them did it or not. They don't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. So therefore, this would be Dan Martin. Then is coming into town because he has the same question. He's like, "Did my father sneak onto that island, kill everyone mm-hmm. with that you know new lighthouse keeper uh, as as accomplice?" He wants to lay that to rest just as much as the as the as the ladies do. That's that's what I'm gonna lock in. Because that is a named character, and I think that is much stronger than Frank or Baby. <laughs> I'm down for that. I'm down for that. Oh Lordy Lou. All right. That sounds well, excellent to me. Okay, so does that also cover your theory for the, the lighthouse then? Are you just suggesting that Jory showed up, killed three men and left? No, no, definitely not. That would be that would just be silly. That would be pretty silly. I think that the conclusion of this novel and, and you mentioned Trident House, I think that they are very much misled. I oh, think that, interesting. I think that they don't know what really happened, mm-hmm. but I do agree that their efforts to like pin it on Vince are real. They're like we don't know who to who to blame in this situation, so let's yeah. just pick the convict because that'll wrap things up nice and easy and stop every, anyone from trying to sue us, basically. But I don't think the Trident House knows the truth any more than anybody else does. And there's a quote I want to use to kind of kind of support this theory. <laughs> okay, here we go. Helen has a line uh, that says, "Your own stories are always going to feel." the most significant. And I have subtitled this quote as Helen asserting her dominance on the story. <laughs> uh, and I, again, stand by that. I think that yeah. what is what it is going to turn out by the end of this story is that we do not get a solid answer. I think that any one of the three men could have done it feasibly. I remember a detail that you like drove in on last week was that all the like 
banisters and stuff had been like scrubbed clean Mm -hmm. and that could be like scrubbing clean of blood or it could just be that they never got dirty in the first place and there are so few actual mystery details that we get and so many little clues that seem to contradict each other like the fact that the clock stopped but there's no like dagger on the clock or any sign of a storm at all i think the clocks being stopped is definitely the kind of biggest mystery thing we get in this story because weirdly enough it's it's a in most murder mystery novels you know, we get a small lead up to the crime, the murder, and then a long stretch in the direct aftermath of it. Yeah. And this story has us before the crime for almost the entirety of the novel mm. with the lighthouse keepers on the maiden. And then has us 20 years later with people who genuinely have no clue, it seems, mm-hmm. what happened yeah. on the mainland. And as far as mystery goes, that means that we are so far from any direct concrete evidence. We are basically predicting what crime is about to happen yeah, for well most of the novel. That's the thing. Can I tell you that the way that the relationships between the three lighthouse keepers are written feels like the moment before the author decides who the killer is. They're setting up yeah. all the complicated relationships and leading themselves, like trying to delve into the characters, but they haven't actually decided who the killer is yet. That's how it kind of feels to me. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point. I, I yeah. wouldn't have said that myself, but I do, I do <laughs> I uh, kind of see that now that you've said it. And now that I've got the moment, uh, the sea is the culprit. That is what I was driving towards earlier in our conversation when I talked about Excellent. like the sounds of the sea and the characterization of the sea. Mm-hmm. It is not a fourth person on the island, as Dan might suspect. It is the sea itself. That is the fourth character in that part of the novel that has killed the men. It is their relationships with each other and with the people that is caused by them being on the lighthouse and in the throes of the sea. Like that is the cause of the deaths, regardless of who struck first or if it was an accident or whatever, the the isolation of the sea is what is the ultimate driver of their demise. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Kurds, thank you so much for indulging us in your wonderful theory crafting. I've I've enjoyed this one. This has been Death of the Reader. We are discussing Emma Stone X's The Lamplighters. We will be back next week with parts nine to the end of this story. I hope you're as excited for it as I am. Really looking forward to revisiting this particular stretch. So ready. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3, and we will see you then.